the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm your host, Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the communications officer for the Museum of South Texas History. So our last podcast episode was January 2020. It's been more than a year since we've published anything on the podcast, but we have been working very diligently creating other digital content, such as the Sunday Speaker Series online and the virtual school tours. We're excited to bring back another season of stories from the Rio Grande. So this is sort of some old, they're not old episodes, but rather just interviews that were conducted in 2020. And they're focused mostly on the 50th anniversary. So we were supposed to celebrate a year-long 50 years of the museum celebrating its milestone. But of course, the pandemic pushed all of that back. That includes, of course, again, the work. So these interviews technically were supposed to be, you know, published last year. But now we are concluding the 50 years in April 2021. I figured I might as well just get these interviews out for everybody to listen to. They, again, are interviews about former staff who worked at the museum. We do have a couple of episodes that are not with staff, but one of them does include a tribute to our co-worker, Sandra Luna, who did pass last year in July due to COVID-19 complications. So we will definitely have an episode on that. But the first episode does focus with museum CEO Francisco Guajardo. Hopefully it just kicks off this season. And I hope that the rest of y'all will continue to listen to the remainder of the episodes. And don't forget to visit our website, mosthistory.org, for more content Welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande. I'm Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the communications officer for the Museum of South Texas History. And we are going to hear from museum CEO Francisco Guajardo. If you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, Francisco Guajardo. I became the chief executive officer of the museum in September of 2019 after having spent 17 years in higher education as a university professor and also a university administrator. Previous to that, I spent 12 years working in the K-12 system where I began as a high school teacher. I was a history teacher. I was an English teacher. I taught other kinds of social studies classes and even created some classes at my high school, Ed Cauchalsa High School, which is where I was raised and where I went to school as a child. And after a dozen years at the high school, I, during that time, I actually went back to school, to graduate school, and completed a PhD in history. I have a PhD that's an interdisciplinary degree that counts history, anthropology, 
Curriculum and Instruction and Educational Administration as from the University of Texas at Austin, where I have all my degrees from. And at that time, I moved from the high school to the university, where I then worked for another 17 years. So now I am, as the CEO of this museum, I have been on the job for about a year and a half as of the time of this interview. So it sounds like all of your degrees, it, it seems to go very well with your job description now. Yes. I. Uh, in fact, when this came up, I got a call from a firm one day when I was happily employed at the university as a full professor with an endowed chair. And I got this call from a firm. It was actually the second call that I got from that one firm. But the the job seemed very intriguing because it seemed to be a job description that that uniquely combined not only the training that was academic training that I had gotten, but also my life experience and my life interests and passions, which were education, history, the valley, the borderlands, anthropology teaching and learning, place-based research. So a lot of what I had already developed as skill sets professionally and as passions personally seemed to come together. But And also leadership, leadership and, and management and organizational development, which I had spent a long time doing, both founding nonprofit organizations that were community-based or educational or working with with community-based organizations. So I had that kind of combination of experiences and, and preparation that all seemed to meld into one. And so when they called, it was almost like it was a job description for me. And I took the leap of faith, you know, leaving a very comfortable position where I sort of imagined myself retiring in, in higher education, either here in the Valley, very likely because this is a place that that I feel such ownership and connection and, and, and affinity and I think loyalty to deep love and respect for the region. That is a hard region, by the way. This is a hard region. It's not just anybody can, you know, live and weather, you know, the, the kinds of both natural and, and man-made kind of factors that shape the Rio Grande Valley. But I think some of us who are very deeply connected to it, you know, we enjoy it and we want to be here. And so I imagined, you know, retiring as a university professor when I got the call. And I thought, hmm, that's exciting. Let me give it a shot. Go from a huge place to a small place and see if I can, you know, help the place be more important than it is, and, and this place is important. Another thing to note with that is, even though you left such a big institution, such as UTRGB, probably about three months after you were hired, we're supposed to celebrate 50 years at the museum, but obviously the pandemic pushed that back. I don't know if you knew that we were going to celebrate 50 years, but, you know, obviously the museum had been around for or still is, you know, around for a long time. Was there any intimidation, any type of doubt? No, no, I don't think there were doubts. I mean, there certainly wasn't any any kind of intimidation. I mean, I, I think that I felt 
all along, you know, and, and of course it grows, you know, level of self-confidence, level of, I think, professional pride that one has, that I certainly have professional pride. And I've had a lot of experiences that have helped me understand myself, understand the world, understand my community. And so I think that I had built up kind of a personal kind of psychological and intellectual portfolio that allowed me to have pretty good level of confidence to slip in and out of different work environments. And so when I came here, I did not know that the museum would celebrate its 50th anniversary. I mean, I learned, I think, during maybe during the last phase of the interview process or maybe as part of the early induction process. Yeah, no, I checked that because I think they, it was mentioned in the interview that we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. So I guess I did know. What I did not know is that, and nobody did, is that we would hit, be hit by a once-in-a-century pandemic. I did not know that. And so when we were hit with a pandemic, I think is when not only I was really challenged, you know, but the entire organization was really challenged to figure out ways to be because... We saw that early on in the pandemic, I think there were prognosticators who were saying that two out of every five small businesses and organizations were not going to be able to weather the the COVID-19 storm. And we actually did see a number of those organizations kind of fall by the wayside. But there was something, though, that happened that was very synergistic, I think, in nature. One of those is that this museum was very well positioned, you know, after 50 years of history to weather storms. What I mean by that is that this museum was highly respected. This museum had been very well run from an administrative and financial standpoint so that it was fiscally strong. The museum had an endowment, you know, when I came in, I mean, continues to have an endowment and it's growing which is always kind of a nice protection. It's a nice blanket to have. The endowment plus just the day-to-day operation and the strength and the respect that it had in the community, I think were factors that bode well for the sustainability of the organization. So that sort of synergistically meshes with what I think I had been doing for many years, I I had published a book, you know, just a year or two before I came here on reframing community partnerships in education. My brother and I wrote that with a couple of friends from across the country where we looked at our own organizational work and work of organizations in different parts of the country. And we asked questions such as, what helps organizations survive? What helps organizations grow and sustain good quality work? We, we actually created a theory of change and action. And so, for example, there are certain practices that those organizations that do well really invest in, such as building relationships both within the organization but also with external partners. And so this museum had, had strong relationships. So I thought, okay, that's good. Now I need to build more on those relationships. So work internally work at creating a culture that's relational and respectful and that gets excited, you know, a, a, a culture of excitement with the work. That 
that wasn't that hard to do because there were a lot of people who were working here at this museum that were already committed to the work. And so, you know, it's some nuance, some wrinkles that I would bring in, you know, to build a new kind of culture of people who are very creative, but maybe were not doing the kind of creative work that they could have been doing for a number of reasons. You know, I thought that, okay, I can unleash, you know, some of that creativity, pull back on, on some of the maybe blocks that have been in place for whatever reasons. I kind of understood intellectually and also in practice certain kinds of ways to sustain organizations. That, in addition, was, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the, the organization wanted to do much more grant development. I was also positioned in a good way because I had been developing grants with teams of people for a number of years. That seemed like an easy thing to do and it wasn't completely seamless in that regard because, you know, the staff was not used to writing grants. Staff began to learn how to write grants and how it's very doable. So the grant writing helped us to survive COVID. You know, we're not out of COVID yet, but I think as we transition out of COVID, I think that we see ourselves, you know, from a position of strength rather than a position of weakness. That's kind of the transition, you know, that that I experienced coming in, and I've been here only a year and a half, but over, I've already had one year of a pandemic, you know, that I've experienced with my whole staff. And and I can tell you that it's been largely positive. You know, there are some negatives, like we lost a staff member that was a profound negative. I think we banded together well. We even used some of, you know, the the tragic news to build upon it as an opportunity. So we had one initiative called the Bearing Witness Initiative where we we developed a collection of the pandemic and we also wrote feature stories that we published in the Monitor of the Valley Morning Star and in the Bronzeville Herald that we called Bearing Witness. And so I think that that was very successful. We did that for 22 straight weeks. That's another way to to just like completely attack you know, the pandemic and attack it in a way that made sense to us, where we stayed in our lane, we created history, you know, we preserved and we, we presented. You mentioned a lot about your experience with team leadership and before for those who are listening we do have a 50th anniversary exhibit it's called golden memories if you take a look at that exhibit you can see how staff is really the crux of the museum because obviously there needs to be people to run the institution and you could also tell, looking at that exhibit, sort of the changes that they had to go through. It's an ever-changing thing because they started off in the jail, 1910 jail building, and then they expanded. And then 2003, they expanded again. And then 2020, get hit with the pandemic. And now there's just a new way of work. And it's just so interesting how we're living that history now. Yeah, I think the the museum's half century existence is almost like a, the museum tripod 
pod part of it is is essentially how the museum looks how the museum sort of operates functions and the try the three legs i think are the board of trustees is one very significant leg and the second leg is what you call the crux of the museum that is the staff the staff does the preponderance of the work there's no question about that and the third one is the community the community i think continues to rally behind the museum in a in a myriad ways and so some ways could be by public funding say for example you know so when the county or municipalities help in the in the funding of the museum that is one way that the that the community helps another way is the community comes to the museum the community visits the community participates in our sunday speaker series the community participates in in our perennial events, Dia de los Muertos, you know, Pioneer Ranching and Crafts Day, a, a number of different kinds of programming. Those are inextricably, inextricably linked. The first one really is the board. And it was the board that really was the genesis of, of this place. It was... It was Margaret Margaret H. McCallan. It was Jimmy McCallan. It was Mr. McDonald. It was Mr. Bromley. It was, you know, other people, Judge Guerra, a number of other people that came together in the mid-60s to imagine that there could be a museum here. And so those people then wrote the charter. And so by 1967, this place was chartered by the Secretary of State of the State of Texas and then approved by IRS. By 1970, that leadership group had already done its due diligence to set up the charter, set up the organization, and find a location. And so the location it found was the old 1910 jail, and that was the home of the museum in 1970. So when the museum opened its doors to the public in April 1970, it was the board. The board did it. And, and even during its first year or so, when it only had volunteer staff, it was the board. It was a board whose energy, whose vision, and whose resource and enterprise gave it initial life. Its entire, I think, embryonic stage, you know, it was like board, board-fueled, board-fueled. This museum gets a staff, I think, maybe a year, year and a half into its existence. It gets one staff member, maybe like a part-time staff member who then would become full-time staff member. And in its first four or five years, and we're looking all the way up to 1975 or so, the museum did not even have a handful of staff members. It wasn't until after it acquired the old HEB building that it became a kind of a campus. So it was the jail, and then it was the old HEB building that was an old Edwards Abstract. There was an old Piggly Wiggly, you know, this old HEB building. Now you need more people to really cover the space. You need more people to be looking after different facets of the organization. Now you need some people to be paying attention to finances and the leadership and the exhibits and, you know, those kinds of things. So that when people like Tom, Tom Fort, who used to work at the, the McCown International Museum first, when he came to this museum in the late 70s, 
He came because of his exhibits expertise. By that time, within a decade, the museum understood that it needed to invest in talent and experience that understood exhibits, exhibit development. And then, you know, the museum hires a director and then another one. And Fran Alger then stuck for about a year. And Fran Alger, you know, brought in a wealth of experience and personal talent to this place. And so she would be the first kind of push to grow and a real visionary. Fran was really a person of the world. She was quite cosmopolitan. She had been to many places across the world, Mexico City, New York City, where she had lived. Cairo, I think, where she lived as well, traveled Europe. When Fran Alger came, Fran Alger being a local person, I think she was raised in the Valley. When Fran Alger came to this place, I think she brought the world to this place. And so that was, I think, an important thrust. So the first thrust was really the board. The second thrust was then the staff. I think what really allowed the museum to get to a level of wider respect was community buy-in. That's kind of the three, the third leg of that museum tripod, three-legged stool, if you if you will. But it's, yeah, I think it's, it's Board of Trustees, and I have so much to say about that. And then there's a staff, and I got tons to say about that. And then there's a community, and I think that that's a much more nebulous, elusive narrative, but I think it, you know, vale la pena to really examine what the community has been like to really help to to grow and sustain and support this organization that's, I think, vibrant. When you mention community, I think about the different type of community members that enjoy the museum. You know, I've been here about five and a half years, and I can see how all the community events and programming that we host really targets different audiences. So it's in a way, it's kind of hard to pinpoint like who is your number one audience because it's so different. Families enjoy like, you know, Dia de los Muertos, Pioneer Ranching Crafts Day, Summer Nights at the Museum. And then we have a different population for Sunday Speaker Series before COVID. We would have a handful, probably more, a dozen or so repeats you know the usuals that would show up and you know demographically a little bit older who enjoyed stopping by the museum and you know chit-chatting with other history enthusiasts I think that when we talk about community because there's a lot of talk in the museum world about how you need to find that one specific target audience but I just don't really think that's true for the museum you haven't really spent too much time obviously dealing with that because you know COVID cut that short for you but with the digital programming in the past year have you noticed that at all? Yeah I I think about that a lot you know I think that that community as I think you very aptly described it is is many different things and the museum I think targets different constituencies and stakeholders for sure I mean when when we do Sunday speaker series that's and we have a following for that that's become very evident we've gotten I don't know a hundred thousand views just during the pandemic on our Sunday speaker series work or whatever the number may be but that's one constituency I think it's that's that's the group of people 
that are really into knowing more about the history, knowing more about the culture, and can do it by engaging through the technologies of the day, getting on Facebook Live, for example. Not just anybody can do that because not just anybody has that level of technological fluency or savvy capacity, if you will. But that's one constituency. Then we have you know, so many other constituencies. You know, there's the archives. There's the collections where scholars you know, for many years have been coming here. In fact, I wrote part of my dissertation many years ago out of the archives here. David Mikey was the archivist of this place, and he and I became good friends because of my repeated visits to, to the archives. That's another constituency, the, the group of scholars and researchers, you know, who may be from universities or who just may be community-based genealogists or family historians. They frequent this place because we have something for them. Then there may be, you know, the student or the youth population. And so those, those folks tend to be introduced to this place through school tours, or they might come because of a particular program that we offer. And so there's the young group. There's the winter Texan group. There's the research group. There's the tech group. All these constituencies that really form the community of, of engagement with a museum. But there's two constituencies that, that I think I want to focus on as well. So one of those is is really what my father and my mother were. When I got my the job here, my father had died six years before. And my mother, who lived with me after my father passed away, never came to this museum. And my father never came to this museum. They did not know what this place looked like on the inside. So my parents, you know, were born in 1934, my mother and my father in 36, and they were very Mexicano, they were very rural Mexican immigrant people into the United States. You know, when they came, my father was 30, yeah, 30, my mother was 32 maybe, when they when we came from, from Mexico. But they were not the museum-type people, but they could have been. They weren't the museum-type people, not only because of how they were, but also because of how museums tend to be. And I think that we can become a place that brings that demographic in, the Spanish-speaking demographic, the immigrant demographic, the demographic that I think would do so well to have a museum experience to make sense of themselves to make sense of themselves as immigrant people or to make sense of themselves as, as maybe second, third, fourth generation Tejanos. I think that that is a demographic that I'm keenly aware of because it is a demographic that raised my brothers and me. Then there's the other demographic, and this is the one that I think is, is much more symbolic but equally important and in some ways maybe the most important one. That demographic is the heart of the region. I think that many of us growing up in this part of the world are bombarded with stereotypical notions and ideas of who we are as people from the valley. We're from a third world place or the boondocks or, you know, that 
we're always 10 years behind is what the conventional narrative is. But I don't think that's true. I think we're 10 years ahead in so many different ways. I mean, if you were to put all things considered into one kind of formula, you will find that this is a really good place to live in, a really good place to raise children, a really good place to have a family. We have really great year-round weather, a little hot at times to be sure, but, you know, it's it's tolerable. We, you, We're resilient people. But I don't think that we dream and we imagine and we believe that we can be as good as because other people tell us that we can't. And we that we fall into the traps of believing that. And I think that that kind of idea is something that can be pushed back, combated by understanding our history, understanding our sources of strength that we should do well to chronicle. When we chronicle our lives, when we preserve and then present our history as something that is as beautiful as it is troublesome, because this is not just one good, clean, honky-dory narrative. No. We are in a place that has experienced colonizations. We are in a place that has experienced warfare upon warfare upon warfare. We are in a place that has experienced such natural disasters hurricanes and droughts, and we just experienced a freeze that was dramatic of historical proportions. It's a place that's both beautiful, but also very, I think, hard and tough and and, and, and problematic. But if we understand it, we know it well, and we get to know ourselves well, and the museum plays a role in that. I think that we can capture the hearts of people. And that, to me, is the most profound and evocative target. I called it a constituency. It's not a constituency. I I may have called it a demographic. It's not a demographic. It is a target. It is the heart of the region. That in that heart that, that feels good about about itself, both individually and collectively. And I don't think that we've done that in strategic ways where we attempt to capture the heart of the region. I think that we are in a unique position to be that place that shapes the identity of the region, tells the story of the region, and through all that helps the region feel good about itself you know, reified in some ways. In the knowledge that this has not been just a, a, a an entirely positive narrative. This is a narrative that has peaks and valleys. But we should know that. We should know the stories so we can know ourselves well and feel good about it. There's a lot of data out there indicating that history museums are not frequently visited because people are, are intimidated 
and intimidated in the sense that, well, I don't know anything about history. I don't want to go somewhere where I don't know the history of something. But I think what, from at least from experience, is that the reason why the people also love the museum is the ability to tell their stories directly or indirectly. It reminds me of that one time we did a Dia de los Muertos activity, probably 2017, where people wrote memories of someone they lost, of, of a loved one, on a piece of paper the shape of a monarch butterfly. And then we had them put the butterfly on, on this Christmas tree. People were crying, people were sharing memories, and I thought that that was sort of that is what we should be doing, is having people share their stories and document it. Yeah, I think that's uh, very consistent, actually, with, um, with good learning theory. You know, good learning theory teaches us that when we examine ourselves, that we synapse, our brain synapses in in more electric ways. So when you're examining yourself and your story in a museum, that's it. You have forged a connection with the visitor. And if the museum can do that, then the museum is now interactive. If the museum can do that, now the museum is engaged. If the museum can do that, now the museum has been useful to the visitor. It is a direction that we're trying to go in more and more. I mean, you know, this museum has experiences of having done that through the years. And you just, I think, presented one example, Pam, in 2017 or whenever that year may have been. This is not without precedent, obviously. But I think that what we want to do is have more frequency of that. And so we want the museum to be much more of a very kind of a, a mirror, an, an active mirror that we place in front of people so that people can see themselves as creatures of history in this part of the world, think about themselves. We've seen that time and again. I mean, I, I've seen it, you know, especially when we were open much more. I remember one, it was the open house that we had in October, I think it was in 2019. I'd been on the job maybe a couple of weeks and we had a little oral history booth, much like what we're talking into now over in the archives. And I remember there was a line of people who were standing outside. And there were people who wanted to go and get a tia or a tia or a grandpa from home to bring them to do the oral history. For me, it was hard to make my way through that line because everybody wanted to tell a story. So people were so, I think, ignited by that. They were moved and inspired, and they wanted to tell their stories because the museum was created an opportunity to do that. And that I, th I think that that was a beautiful experience, and I think that we were serving, I think, a very, very important and significant and valuable function, you know, to the community. So I think that that's what a history museum can do. I mean, it, it can be another kind of museum, and it can do that too, but it just so happens that in a history museum, that's so much in keeping with the purpose and the goals 
of what the museum is. I mean, certainly in our case, you know, we want to preserve, so preserve the stories, and we want to present. So we figure out a way to present those stories so that the world can learn from them. During the month of April 2020, uh, in case those are listening after April 2020, but we are hosting complimentary admission throughout the month of April. Part of this is to conclude the celebrations. And so with the complimentary admission, you know, free admission to everyone, they can, you know, visit the museum, see the Golden Memories exhibit, but also the 1910 jail exhibits. We have two exhibits. One is permanent and the other is temporary. In the permanent exhibit, I know there's a feature civics questions, I believe. And then the other one, the temporary, is Faces de la Frontera. And I believe you have included, or we have included, some of that community reflection. April 2021, which is, you know, a month that is upon us now, is uh, just to reiterate what Pam said, you know, H-E-B. Did I say April 2020 or April? Yeah, but that's okay. I know oh, what you oh, meant. Oh, okay. You, you Thank meant you. 2021, so I, I thought I would just say it. Anybody who comes to the museum during April will come in compliments of HEB. So HEB is a is a strong and robust community partner of the museums, is is underwriting admission for everybody, which is a beautiful gift, I think, to the community. I mean, certainly to the museum, but to the community. One of the things that you'll be able to see is the brand new exhibit, the 1910 jail exhibit. And so we have three other gorgeous permanent exhibits in the the Rio Grande legacy exhibits of Frontier and then Highway and then Crossroads. And so that covers prehistory all the way to the late 20th century. And then we have the brand new installation of the jail exhibit of 1910. And so as Pam suggested, there's a permanent exhibit of the jail so as you go through the permanent exhibit, you will see how things were here were here early in the 20th century. The civics-guided kind of tour is really about helping people see a number of different practices that are very, like, democracy-based, voting, for example. But there's also, you know, the pushback against the ideal of democracy— where we pose a you know some questions in a little game that we have there around who would be eligible to be on a jury in 1910. We have six different people, and only one of them could serve on a jury in 1910. A couple of them, because they were women, they couldn't. Those are some of the, the relative weaknesses in this democracy that we are all attempting to form a more perfect union around. There's a a number of different civics lessons that are embedded within the permanent jail exhibit. And then when you go up to the second floor, you not only see the gallows, you know, where in 1913 Abraham Ortiz was hanged. If you walk across, you see the largest room in the jail, the cell block gallery where we do have, as Pam suggested, a temporary exhibit. And so we plan to leave that exhibit up for a little over a year. It's called Faces de la Frontera. Adorning the walls of the cell block gallery are photographs of anonymous people. And then in the middle, we feature four people who are local people and who are of 
important consequence. So we feature Silvestrita Perez, for example, Alvarez. And so she was extraordinary, the matriarch of a Star County family. We feature Nathaniel Jackson, a member of the Jackson family ranch and a member of the family that was instrumental in the Underground Railroad that came through South Texas. The Underground Railroad of, you know, runaway slaves that came through here. Well, the Jackson family actually came from Alabama to Hidalgo County because of that same reason, to to evade the oppressive nature of slave life in Alabama, antebellum. That family participated, you know, in, in kind of a Harriet Tubman sort of thing, but this was a conductor-less underground railroad. So we feature also Emilia Jr. Ramirez, who came from a pioneering family of South Texas, you know, the the Juniors. She was, you know, an Edinburgh High School graduate in 1919 and then became a very important educator at the university. And we feature also Juan Alamia of the Alamia family, you know, a local family as well, who rode with Theodore Roosevelt in 1898 during the Spanish-American War in, in Cuba. So those four people are the ones that we feature by name and tell stories around. And that is, I think, you know, an attempt to really reflect the community early in the 20th century, along with the anonymous photographs and then along with the permanent exhibits of the 1910 jails. You know, we hope that, that everybody comes. Of course, it's, it's going to be through a certain method, time tickets, because we are in a pandemic and so we need to ensure social distancing and not too much congestion at the museum during April. We do want people to to come in with enthusiasm, you know, get out and enjoy the museum, wear your mask, be socially distant, and enjoy it. 50 years have passed. I don't know if you'll live for another 50 years. I mean, you're already past the 50-year mark, right, uh, that you've lived on this earth, but what do you see the museum being in 50 years? Okay, so the first thing, thank you for reminding me of my own mortality. <laughs> I apologize. I, I always appreciated your sense of humor. I think I spoke to it earlier about how that one target is the the heart, you know, or the soul of of the region. I think that this museum can participate in shaping that narrative of this place as a good place. It's a good place. It has a rich history, and check out the history. We want people to enjoy it. We want people to to reflect on that history. That again, you know, has peaks and valleys, but is largely, you know, a place that has raised good people. And so, in the next fifty years, I think that this place can be a place of good consequence, a place that contributes to the cultural vitality, the cultural vibrancy of the region a place that will continue to celebrate children and families, a place that understands that we are really at the crossroads of the Americas. And, and you know, I think that we have pretty much been of either a county museum function or a regional museum function. But I see this place as being of a crossroads function. In other words, 
we are geographically positioned right in the middle of the Americas. And so we are the crossroads of the Americas. And I think it's important for us to capture the history that has shaped that, that crossroads you know, kind of reality because there are cultural realities, there are migratory realities, there are economic realities, there are political realities. There are so many other realities, you know, that impact race and class and gender. And I think that the museum can be that incubator for all of those kinds of ideas and and historical processes so that people can come here you know, whether it be in person or through virtual means and and get to know themselves and get to know this, this part of the world because it is an important place. I hope that the next 50 years are exercised toward that end so that people can, go, can know themselves and so that people can know the community. People can be, I think, affirmed in who they are. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't ask or mention? You know, there is the the question, I think, of how you feel about this place and how this place has either helped you or not, you know, to find yourself and your own voice and your own identity historically. It, it's always about the person and the lessons that we take from individual people And then I think that we can extrapolate all those lessons to really make sense of the value and the worth of an organization. So how has that been with you, Pam? Why do you got to put me on the spot? I have been thinking a lot about how sort of this stereotype of millennials that they never really stay anywhere for too long, but... I guess I'm just asking myself, why am I still here? Like, what is it about this place, this this museum, that makes me want to continue to stay? And I think a lot of it has to do with the creative process and sort of this how, you know, digital the digital world has really become a part of life. Before 2015, that's when I was hired, the museum was already looking at how can the museum be more digitally involved? And one of the ways they wanted to do that was video content, which I sort of started, but it wasn't, it was just more about, oh, hey, you know, we had this event and that's pretty much it. It was really about highlighting just the events that the museum was doing, which is not bad. I mean, obviously you want to tell people what the museum is doing, how it's doing and, you know, advertising that. But I think maybe is telling those stories. I think that's what is missing as far as the uh, communication standpoint is telling the stories of the everyday people. And that's also one of the reasons why I started the podcast is to be able to highlight people that are living in the region and saying, you know, your story is in the exhibit, but obviously it just doesn't have your name on it. But like, for example, the packing shed, that was the first season of this podcast is talking about the packing shed life with someone who lived during that time and telling his stories and saying, oh, you know, here's a story about the packing shed, right? And we have that on exhibit. I don't know. I, I'm still kind of trying to figure out exactly why I'm still here and how long I'm going to be here. 
but I think the creative process is what keeps me here. And I really also didn't know too much about the museum before I started. I'm now like the the family archivist. I'm starting to scan photos and asking questions about my family history and just learning where I come from and, and things like that. So the museum has impacted me in different ways. But professionally, like I said, it's just that creative process and communicating what the museum is doing and how it's doing and how it's reaching the people is what's, I think, on my mind right now. I think it's it's revealing of where you are in life. I think we're pretty much done with this interview. And just a quick note that this is the first for season three, and we will have episodes with former staff members to talk about their experience at the museum. They were really interesting. They were recorded in 2020, so just keep that in mind for those of you who are listening. But it'll be fun and exciting to, to listen to those. And then our final episode will be a tribute. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Most History Communications. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more stories from the Rio Grande and send us your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.